0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate
1: portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill, and I'm joined today by none other than
0: Mr. Daniel Foch. Dan, how are you? Hey, everybody. I'm good, man. My name is Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker. I am trying to be representing investors all over the country of Canada. And you can find me on lots of social media. Maybe just Google me and find me on whatever your favorite platform is. I basically have made it my full-time job to be talking about real estate. Yeah, dude, you've got like four
1: full-time jobs, but the good thing is they're all real estate related. That's that's kind of like me as well, and I feel like you can be a busy person, but it's a lot easier to be busy when all of the
0: roads kind of lead back to one spot. So, yeah, it's true. I never really got Like, fully grasp the whole being busy thing. Like, well, I mean, I am busy a lot of the time, but I think it's like an unhealthy perspective to to use that as a metric for success. I think it's important to not be busy too.
1: Totally. Totally. And to be honest, hey, that's essentially, without getting too off topic here, that's why I'm doing real estate. That's, and I think that's why a lot of investors look to real estate is it's something that you have to put a ton of work in on and be very busy for a while, but eventually, you know, you stop working in the business and start working on the business, and then that business starts working for you eventually. But,
0: Anyways, we've already digressed a minute and 20 seconds in. Yeah. I mean, it's the type of asset where you can actually quantify the inputs and outputs of it. And gradually, like if you're investing in anything else, it's not as tangible. So it's not as easy to – When you're putting things into it, it's disconnected, right? It's just dollar cost averaging cash into something or whatever. Whereas real estate, you know, it feels like work. You can build sweat equity into the investment, right? If you're going to do stuff there, managing relationships with tenants or whatever. And then you know, you gradually progress towards the point where 10, 15, 20 years go by and you've got a cash flowing portfolio and a retirement strategy. And so I would agree with you. I think that's what attracts people to the real estate asset. What are we talking about today, Nick? We are talking about a question that is probably on a
1: lot of people's minds. And the reason I think it's on a lot of people's minds is because I've been having more conversations about this than almost anything else these days. I've been seeing it in the news, it's all over the place. And it has to do with mortgages. Surprise, surprise, everyone's interested in mortgages all of a sudden as interest rates continue to go up. So today we are gonna be looking at fixed versus variable. Question almost all Canadian homeowners or or would like to be homeowners or, or investors are asking. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna start it off with a little bit of history of how we came to have the current mortgage system that we do now. We're gonna look at the two main types of products which is of course fixed and variable. Talk about the pros and cons of each and then Dan and I are going to have an open discussion about what products are best for what people, what we're advising our clients to do, what we're doing and just kind of a general take on both of those products. Did I miss anything there,
0: Dan? No, I think we're good. So why don't we just get started here on a history of mortgages in Canada? The, The word comes from the old French word mortgage, which literally means death pledge from more, which means dead, and gaj, which means pledge. One of the earliest accounts of mortgage law stems from ancient India in the form of the Code of Manu, an ancient Hindu script that rejects deceptive and fraudulent mortgage practices. And you often hear this come up in a lot of religious texts, the concept of usury or money lending actually being a sin in a lot of history. Well, let's leave the religion out of it for now. And I did think you were going to go. What is that isn't that topics topics for the first yeah, dates yeah. or whatever they say? We'll religion, we'll politics. That and- to the first dates.
1: I thought you were going to go back. You you always bring the Latin into this, and I was really hoping you were going to have a Latin
0: word here. But wow, I guess I think I don't know anything about Latin or words that come from Latin. <laughs> but I think that's like the old French Morgage would also be a Latin rooted. So the word, French so took it so from the Latin. I said yeah, Latin. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Yeah, something. Like- well, I think so. Aren't they all Latin based languages? I well, here
1: we go. I'm getting out of scope here. So the ancient Greeks and Romans and back in their civilization simply borrowed from these concepts started back in ancient India the Romans adopted the concept of debt security by assigning the possession of a property to the creditor while the debtor remains in control of it until the debt is repaid these historical influences continue to have an impact on society who adopted money lending practices including the English common law
0: that took advantage in all forms of the money and lending business that we know today yeah and, and basically you know, this ultimately became like almost like a feudalism, right? So, the mortgage industry dates back hundreds of years and such that back then, I don't think there was instrumentation like we have today, like mortgage documents, but basically people who owned all of the land were lending it to you in the form of labor, right? So, there was, you were able to earn a plot of land. And this evolved from a simple repayment plan to a much more complex financial transaction that we have today. And in many cases, you know, transactions that are built upon these things, mortgage-backed securities, etc.
1: Yeah, and I found this next piece really cool here as well. So mortgages originated in England when people did not have the resources to purchase land in one transaction. Sounds familiar. Buyers would get loans directly from the seller. No banks or outside parties were involved. Unlike today, where purchasers were not able to live on the land until the entire amount was paid. And if they failed to keep up with payments, they would then forfeit their rights to the land as well as any prior payments made to that seller.
0: So The coolest thing about this piece is essentially everything back in the day was a vendor take back. Yeah. I mean it is kind of interesting. And I guess like given that this whole concept originated in England, it makes it a lot more easy to understand why all of the Commonwealth countries are so obsessed with housing and credit and asset bubbles. Another very good point, yeah. Yeah. By the nineteen nineties, most mortgages involved long-term loans where only monthly interest was paid. And this is actually interesting. I just learned this when I was watching a video from Steve Karish about he was doing the landlord platform review as well. So, landlord, you know, they're working with a lot of people in the Canadian social media space in real estate, but that a lot of loans in the UK are actually interest only. So, you're not actually paying principal down. Anyway, so the borrow saved towards repayment of the original sum. So, you, you could almost pay on the principal on your own schedule, but you're just paying interest. Major world events like the Great Depression of the, the 1920s and two world wars led to many borrowers being unable to repay even the interest on a property. And that was how – And many lenders carrying a loan that was not secured by the value of the property. So, this is kind of where we started getting into re- the registration of these mortgages on title and also into amortization, which is another word that comes from the Latin mort, which is about being debt, uh, right? Yes. There's too much death. <laughs> There's too much death The Involved with the mortgage terminology here. Well, you just like call it, try and apply some like Call of Duty, like gamer hype <laughs> motivation, like kill that mortgage. Oh, that's good. Okay. So, yeah. So, this resulted in the introduction of more long
1: term amortized mortgage that repaid some of the principal and some of the interest on each month. And that payments started to be fixed for 25 years or more. So, we start to see back in the early 20s, 30s,
0: and 40s, we start to see a resemblance of more of the system we know today. Yeah, I think there was actually periods of time where I think it was like in the 80s or 90s where you could get up to 40 year amortizations and 0% down and on that note, you know the Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation or CMHC was created in the 1940s, 1946 to be exact, to administer the National Housing Act and today sells mandatory mortgage loan insurance when the buyer is putting less than 20% down. So, these are called high ratio mortgages. So, you have a low equity position and legally, based on the Housing Act, in order to eliminate systemic risk, these loans have to be insured Mortgage loan insurance compensates lenders when borrowers default on their mortgage loans. It also, a lot of people don't know this, compensates for equity loss in those situations.
1: Can you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean by
0: they account for equity loss? So if the borrower is in a negative equity position and is forced to liquidate through a power of sale, basically if the lender has to – kick them out of the property and sell it because they've stopped paying their mortgage, then the insurance also covers a negative equity position. I mean, the borrower gets screwed here, but the idea is that it's designed to protect the banks so that basically there's an insurance policy to make sure that they get their money, that there's no major financial loss risk for banks. Very cool. Okay.
1: That takes us to almost the end of our history lesson here, folks. So the rise of inflation in the 1970s altered mortgages into the products that we know them today. As interest rates climbed, lenders and borrowers found themselves locked into fully amortized loans that didn't reflect interest rate changes. The creation of a partially amortized mortgage, which protects both the lender and and the borrow from major market fluctuations means that instead of a 20 to 30-year term, one, three, or five-year amortized terms across a 20 to 25-year period have become a much better, more reasonable option. Partially, amortized mortgages are now one of the most common types of mortgages in Canada.
0: Yeah, so I know we're going to get into the different types of variable adjustable rates etc but you know that move also exposes the market to kind of unique new risks that we're seeing happening right now and this is very unique to the commonwealth as well where you know in the US they had these things called adjustable rate mortgages that were one of the components that led to its downfall in 2008 i would say not by any means the biggest but it was among them and functionally, you know, in the States now, you can get a mortgage for 30 years. You can lock in a rate for 30 years. Here, you can't do that. I think the longest term I've seen from a, a lender is 10 years. And these are extremely expensive rates because they have to issue bonds basically to make those mortgages. And there's no demand for long term bonds in Canadian dollars, frankly. I think probably US dollars is the only currency in which people would will be willing to buy 30 year delineated bonds. So there's these unique functions and if you want to read up more on this if you just go to the Bank of Canada's website they actually have some really interesting info about just sort of like how the mortgages are structured based on bonds but it's just called what's behind your mortgage rate and it was actually written right at the beginning of covid so I'll be referencing that a couple of times in getting an understanding for that but bonds beyond just the Bank of Canada rate bonds have a huge role in pricing of mortgages I'm going to use that to segue because the mortgages that are priced based on bonds are fixed rate mortgages. Fixed rate mortgages are typically priced based on the Government of Canada bond yield plus a risk spread. So you'll often hear GOC plus two as an example, which is pretty typical. So if the Government of Canada bond is at 3.5%, then you can expect mortgage rates to be at 5.5%. And the reason for this is because banks could otherwise invest that money in Government of Canada bonds and mortgages are slightly riskier, so they expect a little bit more of a premium. Without further ado, Nick, what is a fixed-rate mortgage?
1: Yeah, so to put it quite simply, the fixed-rate mortgage refers to a loan that has a fixed interest rate for the entirety of that term. This means that the mortgage carries a constant rate, so if it's if I sign up for a, let's say, 5% interest, rate right now, I will have that 5% rate no matter what happens with prime or the economy or inflation or anything like that until that term, that first five-year term that is amortized over a larger period of time until that term is up and then I can go back and refinance, renew, move the mortgage, port the mortgage, do several other things. So. That used to be the most and still is, but used to be by far the most popular mortgage product in Canada. However, over the last little while, we've seen the rise of the variable rate mortgage. So, the variable rate mortgage is a type of loan in which the interest rate is not fixed. So, that 5% example I just used, that would not apply here. If I had signed up for a variable, I could have signed up at 2.5 a year or two ago, and now that rate would be up to 5. So instead, interest payments will be adjusted at a level above a specific benchmark rate, such as – and it's usually referenced like this, prime rate minus. So if I say you've got prime minus five or prime minus one, that would be whatever prime rate is, which is 5.45%
0: right now on Monday, September 19th, minus whatever that variable rate is. Yeah. And a standard amount would be minus 65 basis points or minus 85 basis points, I think, right? Like that's pretty much what we're seeing right now.
1: Yeah. So lenders can offer borrowers different variable rates over the life of the mortgage. And they can also offer a hybrid, which is, I think, what you are going to talk about right now. And the hybrid, we mentioned this in our Terms Every Real Estate Investor Should Know episode, which is the ARM, and that is the Adjustable Rate Mortgage.
0: Yeah. So ARMs are often referenced in conversations about the US in 2008. But in Canada, technically, because of the factor that I just mentioned about, you know, the terms of, of different loans. All of our mortgages are technically adjustable and you don't even actually know what the future rate is going to be because you basically are signing up for a rate for five years even in, in a fixed or variable product and then after five years, you got to go get another one. And so There's always this degree of interest rate risk for Canadian real estate investors and that's why understanding the mortgage space is so much more important here than it is for investors in the US. In the US, if you can go get a 30-year mortgage rate hold, You have a degree of predictability in the cash flow of your property, unless the rents completely plummet. You have 30 years of cash flow predictability. In Canada, we don't have that luxury. So people always wonder, why do we talk so much about interest rates? Well, this is literally the answer to the question, right? The next piece we have here is how long does a mortgage last? The common mortgage term is five years and that accounts for 47% of all fixed rate mortgages in May of 2022. But mortgage term lengths can be for as little as six months, I guess. I mean, you could even go less than that. I've seen like flip mortgages. You can get mortgages on a month-to-month basis. And as long as 10 years, 10 years is the longest I've seen a rate hold. Just for comparison's sake, like Present day five-year fixed would be in the five percent on the posted rate, and a present year ten-year fixed is going to be like in the seven percent, so or sixes, let's say high sixes probably. And I think that it's important to get an understanding for that because the bank is communicating what they think the average interest rate is going to be for that period of time. So it's also another interesting thing to look at based on how banks are actually forecasting on their own book what their capital cost is going to be.
1: Yeah, totally, and and you know you'll see the shorter term mortgages they will have lower rates, right? Well, longer term will have higher mortgage rates. I think that's a, that's pretty obvious. Many Canadian mortgage lenders offer special and attractive mortgage rates for those five-year mortgages due to the popularity. In 2020, the Bank of Canada found that 80% of all mortgages were short-term mortgages with terms ranging from two to five years. And I think, you know, I should have pulled this stat before we got here, but I believe there's a crazy stat like the average Canadian moves like every Three or four years, or something like that. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think it is. The average is three years, which is crazy. So
1: I just wanted to pause here for a second. We're we're about maybe just less than halfway through, and I wanted to just remind everyone that we're going to be keeping this conversation high level. Just a high level look, a bird's eye view of what fixed and variable mean. We want you to get an understanding for that. We will do many more episodes where we start to unpack the wonderful world of mortgages and all the good things that come with it because you're going to hear some stuff like again short-term mortgages, renewals, refinances, government bonds, bond yields, HELOCs, second mortgages, high ratio, conventional mortgages, amortization, insured, uninsured, alternate lenders, private money, and more. So that's a lot to remember. It's a lot to jam-pack into one episode here. So Dan and I, I think our goal here was to take a high level Provide an understanding of what fixed and variable are. Do a little bit of a comparison, and then kind of have an open discussion about which ones we like for which end user. Anything else, Dan? I, I just I wanted to throw that out there because I didn't want I didn't want to rush past all these terms without providing some light that we will come back and start to unpack them a little more.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think that that's a good summary of the remainder of the <laughs> ground that needs to be covered yeah. in this space, but. I mean, look, our goal here is I think we are gradually getting tighter and tighter with the topics that we're going to be talking about on the podcast and getting a little bit more granular with the analysis. So we will start covering very specific topics and you're going to see some headlines that are coming up for episodes of the podcast of different little tools that we're going to explore very specific issues very tightly. And this is the most important question in the space right now that I get asked this question multiple times a day by people in the media who want me to opine on it in writing, by individual investors who want to know what I would be doing in my own personal situation. And so I really want to unpack exactly the things that you need to be thinking about when comparing fixed versus variable. So if you're comparing a variable rate and a fixed rate mortgage at the same point in time, a variable rate will almost always be lower than a fixed rate. There was a period of time just recently where that wasn't the case. And if you want to get an understanding for the correlation between the volume of variable rates and the pricing of it. I reference this document a lot, but Residential Mortgage Industry Report by CMHC, they release it on a quarterly basis. You can see in it's typically figure 1.2, increasing discounts on variable rate mortgages continue to boost borrowers' interest in these rates. And This is a chart basically showing how we've almost got to between 50 and 60% of all new originations are in the variable interest rates and so the spread between the fixed mortgage rate and the variable mortgage rate or the difference is what really drives people's attraction to those rates the one thing that i think that we're learning now in watching the market unwind as a result of sensitivity to these rates is that the Risk tolerance is probably the more important component that isn't being considered here. So, historically, Nick, what do you think? Variable rates are. Yeah, I mean, historically, they have always
1: outperformed fixed rates. Now, I want to step aside from the notes for a second here and say that, you know, I've seen this argument a lot on, on social media these days, Twitter, especially, where people are a little. Little more cut and dry than they are on other social media platforms, that it doesn't, that's not essentially an excuse or a reason or anything of that nature. It's, oh, well, you know, historically it's performed. Okay, well, history, you know, history plays a huge role in this, but at the same time, just because something historically has performed better, that doesn't mean that it's not going to make it very difficult for the next one to two years or that a lot of people aren't going to be suffering when they chose a variable rate two years ago or a year ago and they shouldn't have. So that aside, yes, historically historically, variable rates have always outperformed fixed. You know, back in, in early 2020, the low interest rate environment drastically increased the popularity of the variable rate mortgage where most Canadians, much more than half had been looking at the fixed rate as kind of their go-to. So the variables have – if you're in a funny spot right now because variables are drastically higher than they were and we can still see them going higher as the Fed and the BOC continue to raise rates. But at the same time, since variable rates are always going to have an already priced in discount against fixed because variable rates have to be that better choice if interest rates don't move at all. Variable rates will also be a better choice if interest rates only increase slightly and, you know, later on that'll be much better in your mortgage term If and when they do come down, I only say if because I don't want to, you know, they will come back down. But when they come back down, you'll probably be happier that you had that variable.
0: Yeah. I also think that, you know, yeah, you do get the exposure to the risk that the rates went up. But in, you know, if somebody took a record low variable at the beginning of COVID or let's say early 2021 they got a year of record high principal pay down, right? Because they were paying such a small portion of their mortgage towards interest. And then depending on what type of monthly payment they were on, so there's a static payment or a variable payment, which I'm about to explain, they would either be paying more interest added to the payment or they would be paying more interest as a portion of the payment. And gradually their amortization or the amount of principal they were paying down, the amount of equity that they were getting into their property was slowing. So over the next couple of years, they're now going to be at a disadvantage by comparison to a fixed borrower. But you did get that huge advantage at the beginning. So understanding the actual mechanics of it is an important piece of the puzzle because a fixed payment is in a lot of cases going to be significantly higher than a variable rate payment. So let's just get started on this sort of broad discussion here, Nick. From my perspective, I think that it's really important to get an understanding for what kind of investor you are when you're making a decision on what kind of mortgage you want. Because if you're a cash flow investor, you are probably going to try and get your payment as low as possible. And there's a variety of reasons that you might be a cash flow investor. Perhaps you are buying your first four to six properties as an example, or your four to six doors. And you want to actually, you're using these to boost your income so you can qualify for bigger mortgages later. Right. And this is something that we'll often advise in portfolio strategy. To be honest with you, this is probably 80% of the advice that I give to people when we're starting from a ground up portfolio and we're going to do an episode on starting from a ground up portfolio is go get as many doors as fast as you can so that you can become on paper a professional landlord. And then when your lender underwrites you on deals, 7, 8, and 9, they're using all of your rental income to qualify you for the, your next mortgage. So your buying power increases because you're an investor. It doesn't get decreased because you're an investor. And so if you're a cash flow investor, which you should be to be honest for the first couple of deals, you're always going to be looking for the lowest payment. And in, in a lot of cases, we were seeing people getting into... And I wasn't advising people to be cash flow investors in, during COVID. But in a lot of cases, when people were going for the cash flow, they were getting into static payment variable rate mortgages. So these are mortgages where you have the degree of predictability like a fixed and you have a static, they call it, but it's a fixed monthly payment, but your rate is variable. So you're buying a rental property, you know your mortgage payment is going to be $2,000 a month. You know it's going to be bringing you $3,000 a month, let's say, in income. Until your rate climbs too much where you get hit your trigger rate, which we've done an entire episode on, then you know that you're $1,000 dollars cash positive, let's say you, know, assuming there's no other expenses. And so you get kind of the benefit of both. You get the cheap rate, but you also get the predictable cash flow. And you're not you don't really care that much that as the rate climbs, you're, you're paying down less principal because you're not buying this asset to get principal pay down. You're buying it for cash flow, right? You're buying it to show that you have that thousand dollars per unit or per door per month so that you can boost your qualifying income. As an example. So what are the couple of different types of investors and what kind of mortgages might they use? I would say there's cash flow investors, there's principal pay down investors, and there are probably capital appreciation investors or I would what I would call speculators personally. What do you think, Nick? Like just from there and why did you choose the mortgages that you have? Like I just sold my property that had my the one static payment or sorry, variable payment variable mortgage. And it wasn't because it put me in a bad position, but the reason I chose that mortgage is because I knew that I was likely going to sell that asset at some point in the future. And that payment, that variable rate was open, right? And so that gave me the flexibility to sell the asset with a limited prepayment penalty.
1: Yeah. Let me answer your question first and then we'll get to the penalties because I think that should play a large role with investors and, and they should know what those penalties are and that, that'll that determine you know who your mortgage broker or, or bank or whoever's doing this with you. So, you know, what, is, what does this mean for investors? Well, I totally agree. I think just like Dan said, you almost got to reverse engineer and figure out what kind of investor you are. Like when I'm talking to my clients about this, I know my clients, you know, I'm going to be giving extremely different advice if it's Mr. and Mrs. Smith with their three kids and they're looking to purchase their forever home and, you know, they're in their mid-late 40s and their kids are, you know, in teens or whatever. I'm going to be giving them a whole bunch of different advice than I'd be giving a first-time home buyer than I'd be giving a person who's trying to buy their third or fourth duplex. So, I think it it is totally subjective fixed versus variable. Another thing you have to remember with fixed versus variable is yes, there's historical data that that puts variable as the winner, but I've been talking to a lot of people that sure wish they had fixed because it doesn't matter that they're not worried about the you know a couple hundred, a couple thousand, or even tens of tens of thousands they might save. They're worried about what their payments are going to be doing next week, next month, six months from now, as we're in this rising rate environment we've seen people do you know interesting moves like like locking in at a 1 to 2 year and and paying a bit more just to essentially try to ride out the storm that we're that you know some people are are predicting and as it's closer than ever as as the storm kind of encroaches in on us people are trying to figure out how to hedge against against those payments that are going to be going up. And that's the beautiful thing about a fixed is that even if you locked in at a fixed that wasn't so attractive when there was, you know, fixed were being dished out in, in the twos and you locked in at a three and a half percent, well, you're still winning. Now you might have a, you know, a nasty but a sticker shock when a renewal comes up after that first term is over, but that's a whole different discussion. So I want to jump over to Something here that I think is quite important that that a lot of people do without even realizing, and I think that a lot of people have some ignorance with before entering into that mortgage, and that is what happens if I break my mortgage. Do you want to start us off, here, Dan?
0: Yeah, for sure. So the most significant cost that you can incur from a mortgage outside of actually paying the interest is the prepayment penalty. So depending on the lender and the type of mortgage, the prepayment penalty can differ. You can avoid these penalties by porting your mortgage, which basically means, you know, if you think about portability or portage, if we're going with the theme from of the, the different Latin Latin yeah. <laughs> words, <laughs> you know, but it's being portable. You can take it from one place to another. And most mortgages you can do that. You want to make sure that you know what the costs are to port the mortgage, what the costs are to bridge the mortgage, and what the costs are to prepay the mortgage when you get into that mortgage, because I see people sell all the time. A lot of people, especially when we're in a rising equity environment, when the market is growing, people are like, wow, I have so much equity. I want to realize this equity, maybe pay down some other loans or go buy a bigger house or whatever it is. And they end up paying off their mortgage. And incurring this huge prepayment penalty. So, there are two different types of penalties, the way that they're calculated. You'll often hear the word open associated with variable mortgages. And the reason for that is because basically the prepayment is much less painful than the other ones. So, Nick, you want to give me the, the rundown on the, the different types of prepayment penalties? Yeah.
1: So, there's the standard one, which is the three months of interest. So, for breaking a variable mortgage, The penalty is usually three months of interest applied to the remaining principal of your mortgage at your current interest rate. So this also applies to a fixed mortgage rate. So three month interest, that's that standard. The other one gets a little more complicated and that's the IRD, which is the interest rate differential. So the IRD is a difference between your interest rate that you owe to the lender for the remainder of your mortgage contract calculated at two different rates. The first rate is the amount of interest owing is calculated at the non-discounted rate you originally signed the agreement for, then is then subtracted by the amount of interest owing calculated at the closest posted rate your lender has at the current moment from when you are trying to do this at the last, and that's the amount of time left on your agreement. So you'll see IRD happen, you'll see it a a lot less frequently than the three months. Point of the matter is here, You do not want to have to incur these major costs, especially if you're on your way out. You're not in a great equity position. So this just goes back to knowing your mortgage and looking at the mortgage as a very important piece of your investment strategy. We've talked about this before. A bad mortgage, bad mortgage agent, the wrong product can be detrimental
0: to your overall growth and and your scalability and the speed at which you do that. I think that you know you can actually apply real economic theory to this. There's something called the liquidity preference theory. Uh, liquidity preference theory is a model that basically suggests an investor should demand a higher interest rate or premium on securities with long-term maturities that carry greater risk because all factors being equal, investors prefer cash or other highly liquid holdings. So one of the other advantages to the fixed rate mortgage and one of the – or sorry, the variable rate mortgage and the openness of the variable rate mortgage. And one of the reasons that you're able to get a more competitive rate is because you're not getting that risk of being stuck in the mortgage. And so, banks are applying this liquidity preference theory when they're making these mortgage products for you. And this is actually – comes from John Maynard Keynes' theory. I think it's uh, General Theory of Employment, Interest and Money, which is like a 1936 text, still very applicable to, to modern day economics. And so – as an investor, you need to understand one, your risk tolerance, but two, your own personal liquidity preference. Do you want to... Right now, as an example, we're in we're in a market where yeah, if you're in a variable rate, you're seeing your capital costs increase. But if your capital costs are increasing, that also means the market is probably going down, which is what is happening right now. We know there's a very real correlation between interest rates and house prices. And that correlation is, is inverse. As interest rates go up, house prices come down. If you're in an in a market where interest rates are going up and you're watching your mortgage payments go up, but you're watching house prices go down, are you the type of investor who is going to want to sell that property? And is there an advantage to you or is there value to you having that that degree of flexibility or having that open mortgage? If so, then that's where it's important to maybe look on the variable side and look for variable rate mortgages that have open prepayment privileges. So basically, you can exit the mortgage early, you can sell the property, you can exit the mortgage, you're not incurring a massive fee that you would be by comparison to another mortgage product. On the flip side, if you're the type of investor who values consistency and who wants to be able to predict their cash flows for five years, then you're more likely to want to get into a fixed rate product because a fixed rate product is going to give you that degree of predictability. You're going to be able to basically sit back and watch the asset cash flow the way that you had planned that it would when you got your mortgage for a period of 5 years as an example for a 5-year fix or some investors that I'm working with are even getting those longer 10-year fixed mortgages so that they know that they can weather the storm. And a lot of it comes down to, again, your, your own risk tolerance and the easiest way to, to to summarize that is, are you going to be able to sleep at night in a rising rate environment without you know having your mortgage rate fixed? And these are things that people need to, to think about. Because if you've got a portfolio of properties that is all on variable rates, you're probably sweating right now. And even though you benefited from them being cheap to begin with, you took a lot of risk in that The one thing I will caution people on that I see a lot and that we saw a lot and the reason the the market is in the position it is in right now, especially in the greater Toronto area and the greater Vancouver area, is using variable rate mortgages because they were so significantly lower to let's call it circumvent the stress test. And we've mentioned Mm -hmm. this a couple of times, but basically to not to be able to increase their borrowing power, to be able to qualify for a higher amount, they would be going to lower interest rate. At that point, you probably need to reconsider your purchase because if you're having to completely reconfigure the capital cost structuring on the deal that you're doing, just to be able to qualify, your personal stress test might need to be rethought. Right? That's my my two cents on that. No, I mean, that's good stuff. Okay. So I wanted to get a
1: couple, just a a few things I think in here that are important for investors to understand about their mortgages. And then I want to pose those Three questions. We'll do rapid fire answers to those and then we'll get to our deal of the day here. So for investor mortgages, since April 19th of 2010, Canadians have been required to make at least a 20% down payment on a non-owner occupied investment property. So the reason this is important is if you're going to buy a, a duplex and you aren't living in it, You need to put 20% down. If you're gonna buy a triplex and you're not living in it, you need to put 20% down. The only way around putting that 20% down is doing the owner-occupied or or you know, in our world we call it house hacking where you move in and there's other units within the building. Some things that lenders look for, and obviously within the lender community, and I'm not gonna get into this now, but there's there are lenders that love investment properties, and there are lenders that don't essentially, and you'll start to see that with the programs or the things that they offer and and to what caliber they do so there's something called you know rental offsets where a lender will usually offer fifty to seventy percent of the rental income as an offset there's rental inclusions, which means about fifty percent of your annual rental income is added onto your actual income to help you qualify and there's then a bunch of things that can be done with the DSCR, which is the debt servicing coverage ratio. And that's a calculation that involves net operating income divided by the annual mortgage payments. But we don't have to get into all that. What I'm trying to get to is that there are a lot of products out there specifically designed for people buying rental properties. And those are the ones you should be looking at. So let's stop the conversation there and dive into a couple minutes of What does this mean for investors? Should investors be looking at totally different products than the average consumer? And what should the primary residence buyer or forever home buyer be looking at instead of what the investor should be looking at? Dan, give me a couple thinking points or talking points on those.
0: Yeah. So my big one is for people who are purchasing a primary residence and perhaps their forever home, and if we just lump those two together here for the purposes of, of the conversation, I would call those principal pay down borrowers, right? And so, in a lot of cases, they are using the home as a savings vehicle and it's an access to leverage, but it's also the opportunity to get capital appreciation on a levered basis. Beyond that, there isn't really a major advantage for them in investing in the real estate asset. And so it really just comes down to for them, how quickly can they save money, let's call it, in that asset and what are the risks associated with it and what is the risk tolerance. So, you know, for a primary residence is a deeply personal thing. So, the risk tolerance might be very different when you're making a business decision as an investment as an example. And I'll use that to segue over from the investor perspective. The considerations for for the investor are really how quickly do you want to pay down your principal? How important is it to you to pay down that principal or how important is is cash flow? And then how much risk are you willing to stomach and how much flexibility do you need to get out of that mortgage? Yeah. How much how important is liquidity to you? So and you could almost just personally tailor a mortgage based on what of those things if you're almost do like a ranked importance like mortgage borrowers hierarchy of needs, right? Like a liquidity preference hierarchy of needs. But I would say most people who want to go on the variable side, they're looking for cheaper payments and more flexibility. And they're obviously willing to take risk in order to have those two luxuries. And most people on the fixed side are lower risk and want a higher degree of predictability, but they're willing to take that opportunity cost of not having flexibility in order to get those advantages.
1: I love that series of questions that you answered there. You know, I think that's something that people should go back, rewind and and literally ask themselves those questions. I'm just going to maybe at the risk of repeating what you said, keep it super short and simple on mind and say for investors, it should always be a business decision. So look at what kind of business you want to run and work with your broker and choose the right mortgages accordingly because – they can be different for each property, but the best thing that you need to – the thing that you need to do most is leave the emotion out of it, which goes to, you know, the primary residents and the forever home buyers. Obviously, a much more emotional decision, probably a less risky decision. So, if I had to advise, you know, a primary residence or a forever home buyer, I would more likely be advising them fixed than than I would ever advise an investor to go fixed, even though some investors like to do that because that's just the – the type of investors they are. So it really comes down to knowing yourself and knowing what kind of business you want to run. I think that's a good place to stop the conversation there. As we said, we will definitely be coming back and covering more of the mortgage world because there was about 10 terms in there that probably need to be unpacked and explained. But we'll come back to those on another episode. We have got a pretty sweet deal of the day today. And so sweet. I think you just dropped your whole podcast. I, I just setup. dropped
0: my phone scrambling to look at it. So, ignore that. So, People, sorry. I'll give them the summary here. So, 323 9th Street in Humboldt, Saskatchewan. MLS number is SK900751 on realtor.ca. So, if you're Googling it, pretty sweet property, gross income of what? 24480 four suites. So, it's a fourplex for, did I give you the price? $189,900. So, that's
1: literally $47,250
0: a door. That's like a parking spot downtown Toronto. Yeah, actually. It's got two bachelors, one one-bedroom and one two-bedroom. All the windows were redone in 2019. New boiler, hot water tank, on-site parking, one unit as in-suite laundry. It looks like a pretty sweet building. Yeah. It was built in 1910. It's been on... on the market for 85 days. So it's probably selling at or close to asking price. I think I have the the metrics here. So I ran based on the gross income that it provides, you'd be able to purchase it at asking price for a cap rate of 10.79%. Cash on cash return on that, if you're putting 20% down, as we mentioned in the mortgage episode, is 27.73% cash on cash in year one. I mean, those are pretty good. And Dan, let me ask you this you were able to analyze that deal so quickly and concisely. How did you do it, man? I mean, I know you're smart, but come on. Yeah. So I, I plugged them into uh, landlord.io, obviously. We've been doing that for the deal of the day to make it simple. Like, And the reality is you could send us a deal and I can do it. I actually just did a hand... This is, comes from a YouTube video that I just did where I basically just started looking at the cheapest fourplexes in Canada. So I think I'm going to start doing this on a regular basis, just basically... Almost like a streaming, gamer streaming video of me just like clicking through realtor.ca and trying to find the cheapest multiplexes in the entire country. There you go. Sign up to Dan's Twitch to see him <laughs> analyze his <Yeah. these>
1: live. <laughs> okay. Anything else on that property?
0: No, I, I just, I think it's cool. I, I thought it was a pretty cool deal. Well, it's, it is the, outside of Quebec, it's the cheapest turnkey fourplex that you can get in Canada.
1: I'm going to have to do this and correct you there because we had a lovely listener reach out. It's actually Quebec. Not Quebec, like we've been saying, unfortunately. Right. So, apologize to all our Quebec listeners. We're going to stop it there, folks. www.lendlord.io forward slash C-R-E-I to get three months free on this amazing platform. You want to be as smart as Dan? It's probably not going to happen, but you can sound as smart as Dan by analyzing deals in just seconds with landlord.io. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you
0: soon. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Centre, license number 10317, and a partner in g Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of
1: Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.